Hello and welcome to Mouthwash, TBD's podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD and founder of Emerging Technology Advisory, Here Forth. Dan Jevons leads Shell's 160-person strong, multi-award winning data science centre of excellence team at Shell. Recognised as one of the top 50 digital leaders in the UK, Dan is tasked with keeping Shell at the forefront of digital. We discuss the rising impact of AI for businesses and what's coming next that people should be aware of now. Dan joined Shell in 2008 and has some stories to share with you. Find out more about Shell and their innovation arm over at shell.com forward slash powering progress. Enjoy the show. Dan Jevons leads the 160-strong, multi-award-winning Data Science Centre of Excellence team at Shell. He's one of the top 50 data leaders in the UK and is helping Shell stay at the forefront of digital. He's delivered over $1 in cost reductions, production increases and additional customer margins for Shell. And he's part of the team that developed Shell.ai, the impact of which uh, has been seen uh, and lauded by the FT, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, to name a few. So he's doing damn good work. Dan's been with Shell since 2008, but before that, he was actually with Accenture. Um, Dan's also uh, got extensive experience in business process redesign, uh, digital transformation, business transformation and change in general. Um, Absolutely super smart, one of the top brains um, in AI in the UK and indeed the world. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's it's a real pleasure. Awesome, brilliant. Um, Okay, look, uh, let's start with what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? (laughs) Great question. Uh, well, actually, it was about taking the kids to school. So uh, I've got three kids, and uh, I'm sure for many people, they've been uh, in the similar situa- situation to us, sort of learning new routines in lockdown. So uh, that certainly occupies my mornings. That's a great segue into the second question I usually ask people. How have the last 12 months been for you? Well, it's been a funny mix, really. Um, I think, you know, uh, it's it's definitely been a shock to the system. Uh, it hasn't been easy. Uh learning new rhythms, learning to work from home. But but at the same time, it's been pretty special as well. You know, it's more time with the family. Um, and we've been very fortunate and none of us have been sick. So, uh, and, and, and family members neither. So I think, you know, but I, I'm sort of super conscious at the moment that so many parts of the world are struggling and, and so many colleagues are, are struggling too. So um, it, it's definitely a challenging time for many of us. Yeah, it's um, I think one of the themes throughout the pandemic is that people have really sort of like gotten to grips with it through necessity, not necessarily through they've chosen it, but actually now they've come through it, they go, like, oh, I see it can be better and that's something and just working and that sort of stuff. Um, Shell keeps you, let's talk about you for a bit. Shell keeps you super busy, understandably so. Um, in your own words, what do you and the team do? Because it's quite a lofty title you've got, and I'm sure there's like multiple levels of it and that sort of thing. But give us a sort of overview and a bit, a, bit, a mini deep dive. Yeah, it, it's really simple to be honest. I mean, what what we do is, if you think about Shell's business, uh, no matter where you look, we acquire and process vast quantities of data, um, whether that be in our traditional businesses through uh, refineries and and production facilities, or whether that be uh, in retail or in some of the new energies businesses that we're developing. Um, and, and right across that, that data creates opportunities from a business perspective. And so my team is very focused on developing algorithms that then become part of software packages that hopefully become part of the day-to-day operations and ultimately help us to do things a little bit smarter, um, hopefully a lot smarter over time as we develop these things. 
Um, Shell, uh, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say, is a gargantuan company. Uh, they're going through a lot of changes, both publicly and privately, um, as is most of the industry. Uh, you and the team uh, lead the sort of digitization of Shell, key players in the industry. Shell's got over 80,000 employees in over 70 countries. Where do you start when you've got a project like digitizing that company? Well, you know, the thing I've learned is that lots of people think that digital is, is really about the technology. And, and I'm, you know, a technologist by background, uh, certainly by professional background. And I think in that sense, I've, I've uh, you know, always been fascinated by the technology. But actually, I think that's, that's not where you start. I mean, for me, a lot of digital transformation is about people. It's about cultural change. It's about changing the ways that, that work happens. And so a lot of the ways that we've gone about it has been not to start um, trying to look at the technology lens, but really starting to look at firstly the culture and how can we start to foster the, the sort of thinking that is gonna transform the energy industry. And then secondly, trying to create focus on uh, big ticket items that are really gonna make an impact. And I think that's, for me, that's kind of the, the where do you start? It, it's 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 very easy to get very excited about the technology and get carried away with that and forget the why and, and what it does to the front line. Yeah, I think the, the, the people side of change management when it comes to technology is 100% the, the, the thing that people should think about most, but actually happens the least. I'm interested in how um, you you sort of flip that around because you've mentioned that previously in, in press and interviews that I've read. Um, how give me give me an example of something that you got wrong when you were implementing something. Yeah, I love it. So so I've always loved to talk about the things that I, I got wrong because it's way more interesting and people hopefully find it a bit more interesting as well. Um, you know, I started this journey about eight years ago and, and, and sort of just a little bit of background so you understand where I was coming from. Um, you know, one of the things that I realized, having done a lot of work in trying to improve business processes, was that analytics was going to change the world and in particular data and the way we process data was going to change the world and I was very very excited about this whole idea and and you know also at that time a lot of people didn't really know much about you know what could be done and so you know I remember one particular project and and the idea was was really can we bring together all of the data that we have around a particular product that Shell was developing, which would give us more insight around the, the margin that we would be able to generate about that product. And it sounds like a great idea. Um, and I loved it. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. And the reason I thought it was absolutely brilliant was because it had every single buzzword in this project. It was, you know, cognitive computing. It was it was artificial intelligence. It was natural language processing. It was true big data. And we spent months and months integrating large swathes of data with a really innovative startup and, and generating some of our own algorithms and working with them to generate cool algorithms. And, and, and we, we worked, worked our socks off, got the thing to the point where it was live uh, and we pushed it out and we watched with bated breath and, and absolutely nobody used it. And it was, it was a brilliant piece of technological <laughs> wizardry, but the users just, were just not interested. And I think, you know, the thing that that taught me was sort of two things, you know, one, um, and, and something that I've preached a lot is if you're gonna fail, you've got to find a way of failing quickly and cheaply so that you're able to understand, um, you know, 
is there value here or not? And, and being able to kind of test with, with users to understand what they really need and whether this product is going to be useful to them. That's something that I've really learned the hard way. I think the other thing is that quite often people get excited at, at, about the potential of, of the technology, like I was saying earlier on. And I think when when that happens, often people have this assumption that if we can bring together all the data and apply some cool AI to it, actually we, the world will be better. Um, and generally that's not true. Um, a lot of it needs to be in the context of what's the problem we're trying to solve? Why are we doing this? How does it fit in the way that we operate our business and how can we transform the way that people work? And so I think for me, that's some of the big learnings that I've taken, um, you know, from from one of my more spectacular failures. <laughs> mm. we'll, we'll talk about failure a little bit more later, because it is like you say, it, it is sometimes you learn more from it and it's a more interesting sort of um, interview, not to be salacious. But, there, you know, you just different you you deal with different problems that most absolutely. People but there are learnings that people can sort of get to it. Give me a sense of those problems. What What's the scale of problems that you have to solve or get access to? Well, I, I mean, the problems are right across the whole business. And, and maybe the way that I, you know, I talk about this is if you, if you think about the challenge that's that's in front of us, Paul, I mean, what, what we've got to figure out very, very quickly is how we can make the existing energy system much more effective and efficient. Um, in many ways, but most notably in terms of CO2. Um, and at the same time, you know, how we can transform the energy system to sort of start from a renewable base. Um, and that's not easy. You know, that that at the core of my, that that's really at the core of what my job's about. How do we try to do that? And particularly in, in trying to solve those problems, how can digital and AI in particular play a role in trying to solve those problems. And, and my own view is actually it plays a key role. I would say even a fundamental role. I think it's one of the big levers that we we can pull, um, both in terms of our existing business. And, and, you know, for example, you know, there are certain things that go on within the business. So when things break, that has a higher CO2 impact in many ways. It can lead to, uh, you know, fugitive emissions. It can lead to uh, also things like, for example, um, people being flown out to try to solve things as well as parts being flown around the world to try and fix things. And so there's lots of things that you can do now to predict when things are going to go wrong using AI and try and stop that happening. Similarly, you can also start to optimize processes, which we've shown in many ways can have a very, very substantial impact on uh, existing uh, emissions within our current business. But of course, we're also very excited about what we can do to, to Shell's new business. And, you know, we're looking at things like, for example, you know, how can we develop um, AI solutions that make sure that when we capture carbon and put it in the ground through carbon capture and storage, that actually it stays there. We're also developing uh, algorithms to optimize the layout of wind farms in the future. Uh, we're, we're looking at ways in which we can charge electric vehicles. So we optimize the, the the green power that's used on the grid. So really, you know, I can I can talk all day, but you can see right across the energy system, there are these huge problems. And in many of them, AI and data plays a key role in trying to trying to get after them and solve them. Yeah. When I was researching sort of um, around this sort of subject and what specific um, issues that the energy sector sort of focus on when it comes to AI, I didn't it didn't quite hit me till right at the end. Like what you you 
you have the opportunity to sort of use all aspects of AI, you know, not just the ones that we know now, but ones in the future that people are sort of talking about now, but don't necessarily have all the answers to. From like chemicals, logistics, cybersecurity, just three areas that AI, you know, is transforming the world right now. But where else will it impact, you think, that people might not immediately think of when it comes to either their business but or, or, or shells? Well, I, I'm going to answer that by sort of saying where I think it's all going and, and you know, be interested in you know feel free to, to for others to comment and disagree but i think it's you know for me i think where where this is going is if you look at what's happening um and you go back a few years what what we saw was that sensors at that time were quite expensive they were hard to deploy they were difficult to integrate they were often tied to uh, quite rigid uh, protocols which were strictly controlled um and at the end of the day um, the amount of data they generated was difficult to process. Now, everything I just said is totally false today. Um, and so where this is going is, is much more towards a world in which all of that sensor data is integrated at massive scale all the time. Um, and I think what that gives you is a picture of reality in a digital world. Uh, and we call that a digital twin. Um, it's a common term and, 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 you know, there are different nuances of it, but fundamentally it, it's a digital representation of the physical world with as much data as we can put into it to, to make the two mirror each other. Now, the interesting thing about that is that, and, and, and by the way, I should say we're applying this concept fairly extensively already across many different parts of our business. But I think what's interesting about that is if you infuse a digital twin with AI capabilities, you start to be able to do a number of things. You start be, to be able to detect uh, conditions that you couldn't have detected before because quite simply, you can generate edge conditions that would never normally occur in reality. You can also start to look at things like, uh, for example, starting to, to simulate things to optimize the process. Or you can start to play out what if scenarios that, that deal with investment challenges where you can start to see where you wanna go. And so, you know, what I see happening very, very quickly is that actually a digital world that's exploded is actually converging around simple with around some fairly simple concepts with the ability, you know, with AI infused on top of that to start to make the world much, much smarter, quite, quite quickly, really. Um, and this is not I think this is relevant in any industry, pretty much anything you're doing. This concept is relevant to whether you're you know, dealing with a logistics supply chain or, as you say, running a manufacturing plant. But I think in energy, it's particularly uh, important, if I may put it that way. The reason being that we've got to so dramatically shift the core of what we do in the next few years. Talk to me about dramatically shifting, right? So let's talk renewables for a sec. We've got a huge task of being carbon neutral by 2050, right? That's across the board. But is it going to be too late? From the Internet of Things, sensors, big data, uh, blockchain, distributed ledgers, all of that sort of stuff, the pieces are on the board. But do you think AI is going to be integral to lowering this number or just one part of it, maybe not the majority of it? I, I think with any problem like this one, there's no silver bullet. I think anybody that, that sort of pretends that they've got the answer is, is probably kidding themselves. And, and I think for me, what we have to think about is, is multiple technologies coming together to help solve the problem. But I, I do believe that technology is going to play an absolutely critical role in helping us to solve the energy challenge. 
Um, and I think it's one we have to solve. I, I believe we can solve uh, as society, but actually it's going to take all of us working together. And I think that's that's the really fundamental point. I think what I'm excited about is um, the fact that what I do see is AI starting to play a key role, um, not necessarily the key role, but certainly a key role in making an impact and starting to contribute. And I think there's no better place to do that than from within an energy company like Shell, where actually you can have such an impact because we have the data to enable us to do that. And we can change the system when we when we come up with these algorithms to actually take advantage of these technologies. Mm. Um, I'm jumping about. I was going to do uh, business digitization first, but we'll do it last. So that's fine. Um, you, you're pretty collaborative as Shell. Shell's part of um, the Microsoft Alliance OpenAI Energy Initiative Shell Equinor Digital Collaboration Agreement. Um, AI folks around the world talk a good game in this arena, but in reality, there's a lot of IP to protect, right? Agree or disagree? So I think there's a it's it's a fantastic question, Paul, and and one that I love talking about. So I, th I think there's different layers to this, and I'm going to peel the onion a little bit. So at the base level, I think one of the things that we need to get much better at is agreeing on data standards. Um, what we've been to, what we've been preaching as Shell for quite a while, and and in particular through our OSDU initiative, which of course is developing an open energy platform now, what we've been saying is, look, if we all develop our own data structures and protocols that are individual and tied to our software and our companies, we will never be able to exchange information easily and quickly, and that will hamper the development of AI across the energy industry. And that, that concept is really fundamental to our overall strategy. And so we've pushed very hard to say, look, we're fine that we compete in the AI space and the application space. We're not okay that we, we compete in the data model space because actually we should just agree because that's going to allow us to share information more easily as we would seek to work together. And we do work together. I mean, we're in all sorts of joint ventures all over the world, as you probably know, with many of these other companies. And so it makes very little sense for us to be running different data models. So that's that's kind of, you know, at the base level. I think the second thing that I, I feel about AI is that, you know, what I talk a lot about is fairness. And, and that might sound like an odd thing to say, but if you think about why is it the companies are unwilling to share models, it's really because what that represents is firstly, the data about their business, which is if you like the information about what they do at the core of their business and how they make money. And the second thing about that is that at the end of the day, uh, once if if you open that up you're going to lose one of your core capabilities and make it accessible to the market and so it's not that people aren't willing to share these things but but they're not willing to share them where the value of that isn't appreciated and so what we're trying to do with the open ai energy initiative is to say to people look you have fantastic capabilities as do we what i want is that where i have a capability that you may that may be useful to you you work on a common platform with me and you license that from me. But I will do the same to you where you have a capability that I need for part of my business and where it's cheaper for me to do that than to, to develop that capability myself. And I think if we can get into a fair exchange of value around AI and we're able to create um, ecosystems through which we can share 
models and IP, but in a way that's fair to the parties that are creating them, be that a startup, be that a you know a major energy player, or be that a software house. At the end of the day, that sort of mechanism is what's going to move us forwards. Because again, the problem is AI platforms are very hard to build, very expensive to maintain. And if we all build our own, it's going to hamper the progress. So if you think about what I'm trying to do, Paul, at the top level, it's think through how do you accelerate the development of AI in the energy industry so that at the end of the day, we can transform the energy system, which is going to be good for the planet. That's really the top level goal of my organization. Mm. And, and how do we do that? It has to be open because in a world where the 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 effectiveness of the AI is going to be directly proportionate to the level of data you can get access to. Creating an open system and a sharing system is really fundamental to progressing with that goal. And, and that's why we're, we're being so radically open in this space, um, which I think is slightly different to the approach that others are taking. I've spoken to a lot of AI experts, and you definitely are more transparent than the, the vast majority of them. The one word that they all have used um, throughout sort of my interviews and that sort of stuff with them is regret they've regretted that they didn't spend more time on data sets they regret that they didn't think about the negative possibilities of how certain code could be used and that sort of stuff shell can't afford obviously to get things wrong when it comes to their products they're in energy after all and that sort of stuff how does that change how you approach ai to say someone like facebook yeah it's a great question i mean i think what I would say, so, so we've we've thought a lot about ethics and standards as part of our AI program. Um, it's actually one of the things that sort of, you know, is a recurring theme of, am I putting the boundaries in the right places? Um, it's an emerging discipline. I think we're all experimenting. We're all learning. And as I said earlier on, we all get things wrong and we probably push things a bit, you know, too far in some areas. And I think that's that's something that we have to be very careful of. I think what's good about Shell, though, is 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 two things. I think firstly, the safety culture that we have. So as if you if you're not aware of this, you know, Shell is an extremely focused on safety, and that's because energy can be a danger dangerous business. And so we're extremely focused on safety of our staff. And I think that's that that culture has has translated well into the AI space, where things like data security have become high on the agenda, as well as things like model management and, and how do you do that and how do you protect the integrity of the AI that you produce. So those are things that I think from the shell culture we've benefited from um, in a big way. I think the other thing is is in terms of, um, you know, your point around uh, trying to make sure that the, 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 the we, we are not getting things wrong associated with our products. We've been very careful about how far we've we've pushed things because in many cases you don't need to go all the way to full automation. Um, one of the things that I always talk about is is augmented intelligence as a key concept. So the best, almost all of the best solutions that we've developed are not solutions which are fully AI, i.e. operating independently of a, of a person, but are providing a person with additional insight to help them make better decisions. And I think deploying in that way also removes the threat of AI in a way because it's a it's an extra help to people rather than it being something which is trying to come in and take their job or something that's trying to uh, you know uh, run things autonomously and saying it's smarter than a human um, and so that's been very much the way we've approached it which I think has helped with some of the points that, that some of the the dangers or concerns that you're pointing out I will say though that 
data is a problem for everybody. So uh, spending more time on data is definitely something that, that I think everybody needs to do. No, definitely. It, it was my sticky question for you and that sort of stuff, to be honest. Ethics and AI do go sort of hand in hand. Certainly we're seeing it. I, I do think what you and the team do at Shell gives this, the almost complete opposite view to AI that Hollywood actually reinforces a lot of the time. Um, I often say um, AI is the most exciting but boring technology that most people never realise they'll use when it's well done. But the trouble is it becomes unstuck because people don't think about the things before they do it. And to your yeah. point, I'm I think that's incredibly exciting and nerdy that you do that. Um, what gets you salivating when it comes to the future of AI, um, whether that's in Shell or out of Shell? Ideally, out of Shell. Let's talk. Let's talk about the world. Well, I think what's interesting is, is you know, for me, if you try and summarise it, the first wave of AI has been about generating basic predictions to be honest so you know a lot of it has been saying you know when is something going to go wrong uh you know can we identify what someone's going to buy uh can we see when someone's going to leave us and churn and go to another company so a lot of the, the successful use cases are those types of things i think for me what's interesting about that and and it's it's also been a learning the way that i describe this is is this is these are quite simple you know problems if you really boil them down that they're not it's a bit like the what happened in the early stages of automation of manufacturing uh, it's sort of the basic very boring data grunt work that ai has started to automate which everyone wanted to do but the algorithm can do it better i, I think what's interesting is that what we see happening and it's not i don't think it's really there yet in in, in production in many places but I see the interplay of man and machine starting to accelerate in a very big way. And so, you know, things, the concepts like deep reinforcement learning start to create um, training opportunities where you can really start to train an agent um, to, 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 to start to act in a way that is mimicking a human being and to start to take over the operation of some of those human processing, including dealing with exceptions. And I think that is gonna be the next breakthrough technology and the application for that is huge. And we, you know, we see some of these things happening already. I mean, AlphaGo obviously being the most prominent example, but, but there are many others where you know, we see the advances in robotics happening very, very quickly now. And I think, I think what, we, what we're going to see is that that sort of technology is going to come into almost every, uh, if you like, skilled operator environment. It's not going to replace the human, but there's going to be an interplay between the human and the machine, which I think is going to be fascinating and potentially really moves things forwards. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in robotics. Um, I've had the offer of testing an exoskeleton and that, that for some reason, I'm absolutely in for that. But um, possibly oh, that's a great idea. It should be fun. It should be fun. You know, future of humans, you know, a bit of robots uh, lifting stuff could be quite fun. Um, oh, there's so many places I could go right now, but I will go with. Um, let's talk about um, let's talk about blockchain for a bit. Um, yeah. You and the team working pretty heavily, actually, with blockchain. I didn't realize quite how much, actually. Um, what do can or will blockchain um, technology offer the energy sector? I assume it can add impacts everything from you know hqs to homes yeah i mean i think 
it's a similar story. Actually, I find the blockchain story and the AI story very similar in terms of where they are in the technolo technological sort of development. I think for me, what's interesting about blockchain um, is that, you know, the, the obvious use case, of course, is, is things like, uh, you know, indelible records and smart contracts. And, and that's very much been where everybody started in terms of industrial use cases. I mean, one of our more successful ones, which is you know kind of cool to talk about, is we've been looking to try to create uh, a blockchain-based record of spare parts. And that might sound crazy, but actually what's interesting is these things need to have a maintenance history. They need to have also, uh, you know, provenance, uh, applicability, last tested, all of those sorts of data feeds, you know, are, are really important if you're going to then install that in a safety critical environment. And so those sorts of things, having a blockchain that cuts across the different suppliers that are involved in maintaining and managing those spares is actually a really good use case. So we've seen quite a lot of those sorts of things where we've we've gone after them quite aggressively and we've seen some early successes with that. Um, I think what's what's sort of most interesting at the moment is, of course, where this is all going in the energy space is, is kind of obvious because it's going towards transparency and looking at how can you create traceability of CO2 and, and potentially other greenhouse gases like CH4 as well. But at the end of the day, trying to make sure that products have if you like a, a CO2 stamp to them and you can trace that through through the value chain. And I think there, I actually think this could be the killer app for blockchain because I'm I'm kind of convinced that the world will have to go there because there's no other there's no other distributed technology that I think could really deal with that. And I think it's a requirement really, because otherwise if we don't get smart about recording and tracking uh, emissions through the life cycle and particularly things like you know scope one two three emissions i don't think we're going to be able to you know move the needle so i, I actually think that blockchain is going to play a really key role in energy transition it's something that you know our team is looking into heavily and is really excited about and i think i think there's there could it could be the killer app for blockchain uh, that's interesting it sounds like it's pretty integral to the future of sustainable energy would you agree with that well, I think so. I mean, you know, the question, you know, I mean, let's take an example. I mean, I don't know uh, if your listeners uh, have uh, pay much attention to their energy contracts. Not everyone does. Of course, I'm deeply interested in my energy contract. But one of the things that's most interesting as a consumer of energy is, you know, I've signed up to 100 percent renewable energy. Um, you know, the question is how much of that is really green and how much of that is is offset. And understanding that is not a simple question, uh, as you can probably imagine, because, yes, you can point to the, you know, the, the, the green power that that is generated and the offsets for things that are that are leveraged at a central level and then distributed down to the customers. So at, at the aggregate, it's possible. But at an individual level, which I'm interested in because it's my carbon footprint. Uh, that's quite difficult. And I think I think it's, you know, you can see how consumer behavior is actually going to drive this one. I think there's, the trouble is with blockchain is it's quite difficult to sort of understand it because most people have never used a ledger and people always yeah. use ledger example and I, I i always struggle to sort of explain it to people and that sort of stuff i end up just drawing <laughs> that sort of thing but um that's i think sort of the opportunity with um blockchain is to sort of reset um its public persona a bit absolutely um, do you think that's going to be done by the energy companies or other people because like you say there has to be a killer use for something 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting one, right? I, I think the challenge is, you know, outside of crypto, obviously, um, there aren't many examples where it's, you know, t to my knowledge anyway, where people can really say this is the killer app for for blockchain and and it's changing the world. There are lots as we have of successful use cases, but but nothing which is game changing. You know, I think I think blockchain as a technology that that goes beyond crypto is going to need that killer app to be successful through the next you know ten years. And I think we're we all know it's going to happen. It's just a case of when. Uh, and I think the challenge as well, and this is something we've learned through some of the ventures that we've been involved in, so things like that, the issue with, with blockchain is it ha because of its consensus nature, you need consensus of the parties. So it, it, create, it, it requires ecosystem. And, and so you've got to also get really good at convening. And that's non-trivial, as, as you can probably imagine. And, and it's a skill that I think is just fundamental in digital, actually, the ability to bring together multiple parties to solve problems. Um, but it's a very interesting one that I think the some of these, and it goes back to what I said at the start of this, uh, the soft stuff is the hard stuff, right? It's often the people dynamics, not the technology that prevent adoption. I think it's an interesting area just simply because lack of technology, uh, lack of understanding, but also provenance and trust is such an issue right now. Um, when I think of those, when I think of AI and blockchain and that sort of stuff, the energy sector's got this stack of cash at its disposal and a legacy, to, a legacy to maintain, but they've also got competition chomping at their heels, not just like the big boys, but also or big people, the big, um, but also some new sort of upstarts and that sort of stuff, um, especially with the push for renewals and that sort of stuff. If there was a scale for AI, one to 10, say, um, 10 being completely understand everything, where would you put the energy industry right now? So, so I think, I mean, I honestly think that we're just at the start of this, Paul, I really do. Um, you know, uh, I mean, if you look backwards, you can see how far we've come, but, but, but I can just see the mountain to climb. And I think, you know, uh, I don't want to be too arrogant about it, but we've built a pretty, pretty effective capability in Shell um, that I think is delivering a lot of value for our organization. But I also am just so conscious of the problems still ahead and how much further we have to go not 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 just in terms of technology development i think there is a lot of technology development to do but also in terms of just making it part of day-to-day -day life i mean one of the things that we've focused on is thinking through how do you get eighty thousand people you you mentioned the number um and actually more than that because we also have contractors and suppliers uh you know, partners, all of these people that in many ways have to be on board with this for Shell to be transformed through digital technology, AI, blockchain and everything else. And so the, the, the challenge is, how do you do that? How do you start to transform those work processes? Because you can build all the technology you like, but if nobody's using it on the front line, you never get the transformation that you're looking for. And so, you know, one of the things that we've done is focus very hard on the power of network and, and how can we start to embed? And, and I think, you know, to give you an idea, we've got about 5,000 people now engaged with the AI journey. So that going back to your scale of one to 10, that sort of gives you an idea of, of the, the, the sort of penetration of this in the organization. You know, we've got about 5,000 people actively engaged and the vision is everybody actively engaged. And so I think we're probably at the, you know, the, the, the two or three mark in terms of our, 
overall progress in this space compared to the ultimate potential of what this could do for energy. But I also don't want to belittle it because I think we've also come a very long way. Um, you, yeah, I mean, uh, every day it seems to be another thing that someone, you know, it's a first, a world first, things are learning and that sort of stuff. Um, you're quite lucky, actually, at Shell, um, if that's the right word, um, that you're not really in the dodgier areas of AI um, that cause a lot of issues, um, facial recognition, for example. Um, for Shell, AI offers not just billions of savings, but also ways to make more money. I think that's fair to say. What yep. areas aren't you using AI in right now that you plan to? Um, great question. Uh, I, I think there are a few areas where I would like to to see. Let's say I think. Let me let me step back. I think it's true to say that we've got experiments running in most parts of our business now. So I, I think there's very few parts of our business that are totally untouched by AI in any way. I think what's interesting is you know we've focused on the areas where the biggest impact is going to be. And that's, as you rightly point out, in terms of uh, dollars, of course, but also very importantly in terms of CO2 and also safety. Um, I haven't talked much about that yet, but I think AI for safety is another big theme that we think is critical in, in all of this. But but those are the areas where we've, we've focused, and that's meant things like you know focusing on some of our big assets in the production space, also looking at some of the ways we interpret the subsurface, AI has big applicability there. Um, looking at things like, as I mentioned, you know, how can we apply to some of the new businesses we're developing? So those are the areas where we've had the most penetration um, it, it, within Shell. I think perhaps the the under underutilized areas, probably a lot of the back office space. Um, there's a huge amount of back office that we generate within Shell, as you can imagine, from you know contracting and procurement to finance to HR to, to legal and so on. And in many of those areas, there's just a lot of pushing data and transactions around that's inevitably part of the way that you know most businesses run today. And I think that space is going to be hugely disrupted in the next you know five to ten years. Um, I think beyond recognition, and I think AI is going to play a huge role in that. And I think. I think for us in Shell, I think there's a lot of uh, things we need to do to get after that space a bit more proactively, uh, recognising that we want to stay focused on on where the impact's going to be as well. Um, I'm conscious of time, just sort of, I know I want to keep to an hour because I like uh, being respectful of people's time. Um, you, So we want, I want to talk a bit about digitisation, but if anyone's got any questions, use the um, hashtag mouthwash show and I will get to them. Um, again. Um, you, I think one of the areas where AI can be applicable is um, skill and reskilling and that sort of stuff. You're embarking on an aggressive um, upskilling of people and reskilling. Um, can you talk about what that sort of looks like and any advice for others doing the same? I, I feel like the pandemic's sort of done really well for some people, but then others realise, oh, actually, I need to reskill. Well, look, I'm so glad you raised it because this is something that I'm really passionate about. And I think, you know, one of the things you have to bear in mind is that uh, AI can is one of the things that can create, if we're not careful, an ever-growing digital divide between the haves and the have-nots. Um, and that's true in the outside world. It's true in the corporate world where, you know, you can see people's jobs disrupted by AI, but them not being a part of it. And, and that has a challenge to the change process, but it's just also the wrong thing to do from a people perspective. And so one of the things that I've tried to do from the outset is say, look, how do we make this AI journey 
an inclusive journey where people feel part of it and where they want to go with us rather than something that they feel is being done to them from outside. Uh, and so, you know, in that context, what we've been trying to do is is really focus on a number of things in terms of trying to engage and upskill uh, the broader community within Shell. And so maybe just to walk through how we've gone about that. I mean, what we've done is, is kind of with the with the broadest community, the, the 5,000 people, which is voluntary, by the way. So we haven't forced this on anybody, but we've encouraged people to join and we've been very out there with our internal marketing in saying, you know, this is the AI program. If you want to come along, come listen to some webcasts and some join some sessions a bit like this one where, you know, people like me and others in Shell talk about what they're doing and, you know, why it matters and how it's going to impact our business. And we run multiple sessions a month and that's everything from, you know, leaders like myself talking about strategy through to you know people on the ground talking about the last piece of code they wrote and and, and that community is really active and has been a you know fantastic source of inspiration for me really and actually a lot of the best ideas have come from that community but I think also what we've to, done is try to create a structural reskilling process where if people start to get engaged we give them the skill sets and the uh, the training to actually start to build their skills in this area now that might be in a simple way. So for an engineer on the front line, they may only need to develop a simple model. And so what we've done there is we've started to run a, a DIY data science program, as we call it, where these folks can learn with some simple tools like Azure Machine Learning and Alteryx, how they can develop a model and, and use it to improve the way they do business. So that's kind of you know the second tier. And then the third tier is where people start to get engaged and start to say, well, actually, I want to move my career in this direction. We're offering a structural reskilling process. So we've worked with Udacity to create a series of nano degrees in which uh, people will go on these courses and basically they come out the other end as a certified data scientist. And we've seen some fantastic examples. I mean, my favorite one is, you know, I met a guy in, in, um, in one of our upstream assets. Uh, you know, he was working on uh, trying to trying to monitor the production, basically. Um, he was just really passionate and he asked me for help saying, you know, how can I get engaged? And he, he went through one of these structural reskilling processes. Uh, he, he joined my team, became a data scientist. He then went back to an asset in, 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 in Shell to, uh, to, to basically develop his skills further and, and to lead a small data science team out there. And he's actually, you know, just left Shell, sadly, but he's gone off to to, to lead a, you know, a, a green energy data science group. And I think, you know, I'm also, I, I think the key thing here is that people are going to develop their careers. There's going to be a lot of flexibility uh, in how they do that. I think also the other thing we, we recognize within Shell that, um, you know, people in this domain are not going to necessarily be with us for life. But but what we do want to do is create a real real affinity. We want to reskill these people. We want to allow them to to develop their careers in whichever way that goes. We want to be open to them, you know, coming in and out of shell. We want to create flexible career paths for them. And we want to ultimately use that to really attract the, the, the best talent. And I think the approach we're taking has resonated hugely. And, you know, with, there's some amazing stories out there. You know, the fantastic CNBC article, which was written about the program, the reskilling program in particular, and some of the stories and the people that were interviewed in that just make me really proud of that aspect of the way we've gone about things. 
I like that. I think um, focusing on people during the pandemic, a lot of people are paying it lip service, but a lot of people are making real changes. Um, allow me a sweeping statement, you all. Um, fear of failure uh, and uncertainty affects us all, but there's um, trouble at the top for a lot of firms. When you think about senior leaders who aren't massively into tech or waiting for golden parachutes to unfurl. Um, any advice for people either underneath those people or people themselves? Um, how do we make uh, senior folk uh, at the top change their attitudes towards failure or, or not knowing enough about tech? Um, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I feel I've been really blessed with, with you know, the, the senior leaders that I've had uh, in the organization. You know, I, I think um, what I will say is, you know, we focus a lot in Shell on, on, on learner mindset and openness. Um, and that's been a real kind of, I think that's probably honestly been a change in the last five years or so where that, that trait has been emphasized a lot. Um, and I think, you know, that I've really benefited from that in a huge way, because I think um, if I go back you know, to the start of my career, I think it was much more, the tone from the top was, was sort of, um, you know, that, that they understood better and that it was, you know, more directive. And, and I think culturally there's been a huge shift as we've started to embrace digital ways of working towards that learner mindset, that inquiry. And actually one of the things that I've, I've really felt very listened to. And, and I think, but I think stepping back from that and, and just going back to your question, I think the main thing is, you know, it's about culture and it, it goes back to where I started this whole thing. You know, the culture I, I'm trying to describe here is radically different. You know, a culture in which uh, people's people progress their careers in the way that is genuinely best for them. Um, and we really care about that, regardless of where they end up. Um, and that may take them outside shell and that's okay. A, a culture in which uh, leaders want to learn and have a non-hierarchical approach and look at the world uh, basically in a very different way. And they start to think about how can they remove blockers and enable the front line versus how can they how can they dictate direction? Um, you know, a, a world in which you know people are really uh, trying to work across organizational borders. Um, a world in which the we use communities and and crowdsourcing to try to drive this. A world in which we work with partners and an ecosystem in a very open way. And I think, I, I, I guess the picture I'm trying to paint for you is one in which, you know, the whole culture of the thing has to be different if you're gonna be successful. And I know that might sound a little bit crazy, but but at the end of the day, I genuinely believe that those are the success criteria that are gonna differentiate the, the ones that win in the AI space from those that get overtaken by the competition. Because I think if you adopt these principles, the speed you can generate and the change momentum that can happen um, is, is really exciting. And I think the other thing I would say is, it's the sort of change we're gonna have to create if we're gonna change the energy system fast enough. And I think that's what makes me so passionate about doing what I do, because at the end of the day, I feel that if I can build that culture and I can create that change wheel, at the end of the day, with leadership support, I can start to have that sort of impact on the energy system. I'll, I'll give you a roundabout answer on that one. I think you're roundaboutly answered it. Um, <laughs> businesses have gone through, this is the last question, then we'll go on to um, Desert Island Tweets. Um, 
Sorry, sorry to people, I haven't got onto a business digitization as much, but I was having too much fun with AI. Right. Businesses have gone through some incredible disruption over the last 18 months. Um, probably we've got, what, another six to 12 months based on current projections. And if everybody licks each other over the weekend, we don't know. Um, some companies remain paralyzed, though, when it comes to digital, I think, because of costs and knowledge. Um, you're obviously an expert in the area of digitization for massive companies. What can smaller companies learn from companies like Shell that have worked with their business? Um, what should they be doing now if uh, they've been a bit wait and see what happens or is it too late super question um so definitely not too late I, I think the other thing i would say is that to some extent smaller companies have an advantage over large companies so i think what what the advantage that we have is the access to data that we have and the access to an ecosystem uh, and that advantage shouldn't be underestimated but the advantage for small companies is they're often much nimbler and they're much more able to adapt and the cultural change can happen much more quickly. So I would certainly say if you're a small company, don't give up hope. Um, you know, just because you don't have access to the same resources doesn't mean that you can't change as quickly. I think the other thing to say is that if you look at the way in which the consumer world is transforming, many of the consumer tools are making it very, very easy to, to, to utterly transform a small company. So, you know, I use the Microsoft Office example. I mean, the, the acceleration in Microsoft Office technology around Teams and Power Apps and, and all of the things that are going with that, with SharePoint and so on, you know, those sorts of things can radically change the way a company operates in a very, very short period of time. So so certainly to the to the small companies, please don't lose lose hope. Please don't worry about lack of resources. The one piece of advice I would give is be very selective in your investment. And I think this is true whether you're large or small, actually. You know, just because you can build it doesn't mean you should build it. I, I find a lot of people who are building everything from scratch. And I think in many cases, you know, the best answer is try to buy everything you can from the market and be really selective about what you want to build to differentiate your company, because the build cost is, is where you're going to sink you know, a lot of your time and effort. And that's where you really have to make sure that that's going to move the needle for the company you're developing. I think that's a good place to um, depart for the Desert Island. Um, okay, it's uh, time for Desert Island Tweets, the part of the show where we pick a tweet or two that's changed the guest's mind or way of thinking in some way. So please turn your attention to the nest and I will pop it up in the space. Dan, why did you choose this one? Well, uh, so so tweets from a guy called Tom Davenport and, and you know, he's been a, a long-term hero of mine to be honest um he, he's basically sort of i think in many ways a lot of his writings and thinking has brought together two worlds which i think are absolutely fundamental one is the world of you know changing business process and the other is around uh you know analytics and ai and i think i've just really enjoyed some of his some of his thinking i think what's interesting about this particular tweet which um you know what he's painted it's actually the article he links to underneath it that's very a very good read and i think what he's painting is is a world that i see coming very very quickly which which i've sort of become more aware of in in the i guess the last few weeks really and i think what what's what he's showing is particularly within the corporation and it goes back to what i was saying about the digital twin the world of AR and VR and AI is getting very, very close together. And, and you talked about facial recognition, which is obviously the sort of 
the, perhaps the less beneficial uh, outworking of this. But I think there are many other much better use cases for it where I think what's going to happen is that augmented reality in the enterprise and over-the-shoulder coaching has, is going to become the norm. And AI augmenting that is, is almost the logical next step. Um, and, and that's something I'm thinking a lot about. To give you an idea, um, you know, we, we saw, uh, I believe it was something like a 10,000-fold increase in the use of virtual rooms, i.e. Uh, collaborative rooms between offshore facilities and onshore uh, offices, or in this case now kitchens, uh, during COVID. And so what we what was happening was people were not going to the platforms as much, and they, they were forced to use things like realware and that technology to start to have conference calls where people could look at things from their dining tables and give advice to people on the front line. And I think that in conjunction with AI, with digital twin coming into the equation as well, I think that's really going to change the nature of physical industry. So, so that's why I shared that particular tweet. You've just given me, uh, thank you for that. Um, you've just given me uh, one sort of final thought to sort of um, ask you. Um, you obviously use lots of tools. Not all of them you probably build in, in-house. Give us your top five tools that you use, things like Miro or anything like that. W what are the ones that really get you jazzed or you think are amazing? It, in my personal life or professional life? <laughs> uh, either or, either or. But probably for work. Let's keep it for work. <laughs> okay. So um, so a, a few things that, that I've really enjoyed recently. So um, instantly we've started using a lot of a, something called Mural, which is kind of interesting. Um, Mural is basically a, a virtual uh, whiteboard, which is really helpful. Um, it, it basically lets you put stickies on it. It's kind of your, you know, your white, you know, your, your brainstorming equivalent. And I think in COVID times, that's been really useful because it started to allow people to connect digitally where people are just longing for that sort of brainstorming connection. So I've, I've really enjoyed that. Uh, Menti has been another one of our COVID tools. So anonymous surveys have been very, very helpful um, in getting genuine field feedback of how people are doing and, and getting them to try and tell us how we can improve. So that, that's been another one. Um, th then if I go into the sort of the, you know, data science space, um, I, I think, you know, I guess, you know, we, we've used a lot of different tools over the years, but some of the ones that we're, we're really excited about at the moment, um, we work a lot with, with Databricks. Um, we're working with them on their Delta technology and Delta Lake. Um, I just think that's a fantastic breakthrough in terms of ability to deal with very, very large scale data uh, and process it effectively. Um, we also work with C3AI. They've been doing some really cool stuff with us in the area of machine vision recently. We've been really seeing massive acceleration on GPU processing um, uh, in that space, um, which has been very, very impressive. Um, I think also, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, historically, Alteryx has made a huge impact on our journey. So, you know, Alteryx is one of the tools we adopted really early and um, has been very powerful in, in sort of transforming the analyst experience. So uh, I could keep going. Those are just a few of them, that, the things that spring to mind straight away. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Mouthwash is recorded live on Twitter Spaces before becoming the podcast you've been listening to. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by leaving us a rating and a review.
Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring activists, AI experts, Silicon Valley royalty, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and a whole lot more besides. See you next time and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash.